Y'all, welcome. Welcome to RAF. My name is Simon Stokes. I'm the RAF campus minister. Um, you may be thinking to yourself, all right, why are we in the book of Joshua? I thought we were going through the book of Hebrews. And the reason that is, is because a lot of what I want to do this semester is actually show how the Old Testament and the New Testament are connected and actually fit together. Um, and so I thought it would be helpful to kind of take a step back and jump into the Old Testament to a random book that most of you have probably never read. Be real. <laughs> um, so I'll dive into it. Where were you last Wednesday night? I don't mean, we didn't have our yet. It's not a big deal. Uh, <laughs> last Wednesday night about this time, uh, we were, I was at Moe's with some people in our, with RUF, and we were eating, having queso, chips, burritos. We wrapped that up. Some of us went to Yopo. Um, but from there, we went down to the Varsity Theater, and we went in because they were showing the Duke-UNC game. And for some of y'all, I know this story is too soon. <laughs> Bear with me. <laughs> they were showing the UNC game. And if you've never been to the Varsity, it's this old, it's a really neat theater. You should go sometime. It's an old theater, one screen. You go down a long hallway, and it's just kind of packed, 150, 200 seats. And we go in there, and it's full of like people in Argyle jerseys, people with their faces painted, beat Duke shirts. I was one of those people. And... He, there was someone on the left yelling, tar, and someone on the right yelling, heels, and there was just so much energy, it was electric. And we, we lucked out, and we got seats right on the front row, and if you don't know, the screen is far enough away from the seats where you're not, like, cocking your head up like that to look at it, but it's, like, a really solid 45 degrees. <laughs> I pay attention to these things. Um, and it was... It was great. I mean, the viewing was great. You had instant replay. They could uh, screen in on uh, Bryce as he was having the game of his life. And it was just so, so much fun. And part of what was so exciting about it was that we were ranked number five. And Duke had fallen out of the rankings for the first time in, what, like 20 years? And only just that week slipped back up to the top 20. And we had home field advantage. And we had uh, a lot of upperclassmen, and they were freshmen and sophomores. And it just seemed like this was our, this was our year. I know, this is too soon. It's okay. <laughs> Bear with me. <laughs> this was our year. We, like, the mood on the campus, I don't know if you remember this that day, but it was just like, all right, don't want to jinx it, but we're probably going to win this one. <laughs> And I can remember watching the game and being so excited and having tar, heels, like going back and forth on both sides and knowing like, okay, we don't have them locked up, but like we're up until the very last few minutes of the game. And that was just so gut-wrenching. I didn't grow up as a UNC fan. I didn't come from uh, Carolina at all. And so I actually grew up as an SEC football fan. But watching that game, I felt like made me more emotionally invested in Carolina because I got so into the game and so in atmosphere, which is like second only to being in the stadium, that like when they lost, I just I felt like someone had punched me in the chest. And walking down Franklin Street was so demoralizing, y'all. <laughs> I can't even tell you. There were Duke fans with like Duke shirts, like yelling at Carolina people. Did, you, did anybody see this? Like shaking it. It was terrible. I walked past that pretty quick. <laughs> but like you, you see that thing and you look at it and you say, okay. Lord, why is what we wanted up here and what we expected up here and why is what we got down here? Why is that? How are we supposed to deal with these difficult situations where we don't get what we wanted out of life and where we totally expected out of life, 
But nevertheless, God calls us to obedience and to faithfulness, right? Like the Tar Heels did not beat Duke at home. And that's terrible. But we still have the whole rest of the season and the whole rest of March Madness to play in the playoffs, right? Like we have to be faithful with that. What do you do with the fact that great seasons have setbacks? And no amount of education or hard work or great friends or mentors will keep us from suffering some of that loss. And what makes this really hard is there's no real way to avoid it. That we can work and work and work to keep ourselves from hardship and disappointment and the uncertainty of the unknown. That sense of I can just like put enough things in place and get my hands on this, then I'll be able to ride out whatever storms pop up. But I think we learned last Wednesday night that sometimes practice doesn't make perfect, right? And you can have a great team and still have setbacks. On the other hand, though, like if we throw our hands up in the air and just quit, then we definitely won't ever like succeed in the things we want to succeed at. You know, life in a fallen world is hard sometimes. And yet God still calls us into things. And for the sake of His people, for the sake of His kingdom, we have to be obedient with that. For Joshua, the guy we just read about um, just a minute ago, that meant that it was a call to lead God's people into the promised land. For us, it looks a little bit different. We're called to be faithful even when we don't know how things are going to turn out. We're called to be faithful to friends that are great sometimes, but sometimes hard to love. In the church, with people who don't like or necessarily fit in with. That what we want is up here, that I want it to be easy, I want to be in control. What we get is down here, that this is hard. And I, you know, I've never felt more out of control in my life. And the space between those two things is not easy at all. It's uncertainty, it's frustration, it's hard. In the face of all those overwhelming obstacles, though, God calls us to be obedient to Him. The question that He asks us is, will you follow me? Do you feel like that's hard? Do you feel like that's impossible? No, I feel that all the time. And if you too, too, then you're not alone. Because in the midst of this, we have to deal with a hard reality that God is either going to keep His promises or He won't. That either God's way is the right way or it's not. That either the word that He gives us is true or it's not. That Joshua has to deal with the fact that either God has called him and his people into this land or He hasn't. And He's going to be faithful to them or He hasn't. Like that's the, that's the truth of the Bible. Like, Either it is or it isn't true. And we have to deal with that. So when you read Joshua 1, 1 through 9, these questions hit us right in the face. So I want to keep this really basic tonight. What does Joshua want? What does Joshua want? And what does God promise? What does Joshua want? What does God promise? So let's dive into this. I know that Joshua must have felt some of the things I've just explained here. Here's a guy who's been groomed for the last 40 years to take over after Moses. A really big deal guy in the Bible. It sounds good, right? Like he's going to be the chief. He's going to be the head. This is going to be an incredible job. He's kind of the Roy Williams to Moses, Dean Smith. Like he's going to set in and like step into this storied program. The problem is you don't know God's people like Joshua knew God's people. What Joshua inherited is people who've grumbled, people who've worshipped idols, people who made Moses, this incredibly saintly old man, so mad that God would not let him into the promised land. And Joshua is thinking, okay, I've got to do this alone. Moses has just died. And on top of that, Joshua has to lead all these people against the armies that are already in the land. Canaanites, Hivites, Hittites, Philistines, lots of people with weird names. Just know they're bad folks. And they've had years to build cities, prepare for war. 
Joshua has no satellite. He has no radar. He has no drones. All war is brutal and bad, y'all. Some of us probably have family members who've experienced that firsthand. But Joshua's war is not just going to be brutal. It's going to be hand-to-hand combat. And he has none of the modern ways to know where his enemy is or what kind of terrain is out there. In many ways, God has called Joshua to walk by faith and not by sight. I mean, you think you face obstacles here? Like, Joshua knows what you're feeling. Just picture him, like picture a guy standing on a hill, looking out over this land that God has promised these people. And on the left right here is like lots of families, small kids, tents, like tons of farm animals, like cows and like cute goats. And just like, it's the least, like least intimidating force you would ever think of. Like these are, these are weak people who've walked around in the desert for like 40 years. And on the right side over here are strong, heavily fortified cities full of people that Josh is going to send some spies in in a few chapters that tell him these people are huge and they are strong and they are big and they are bad. And Joshua has to be sitting there and looking at what he's got and looking at what God has called him to and thinking, how am I going to do this? Like, look at what I've got to do and look at what you've given me to do it with, Lord. Like, have you ever been there? Looking at what you've got and looking at what God has called you to do? In the midst of his fear, God says to Joshua, Be strong and courageous. Read my word, I'm with you. He doesn't, notice this, he doesn't give Joshua a plan for war. He doesn't give him some really cool sword. He doesn't send him 100,000 heavily trained soldiers to come help him. That might be what Joshua wants. But what does God give him? Look at the text here, look at verses 8 through 9. God says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you'll make your way prosperous, then you'll have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What does God give Joshua? God promises him his word and his presence. Y'all, when we think of the book of law, we think like Ten Commandments, set of rules. But what does the Bible mean when it says the book of the law? It means the first five books of Scripture. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Why is this important? Why does God want Joshua to read this? Because it's where Joshua came from. It's the story that he's living in. God is saying, read this book and remember all the things that I've done for you. You cannot see the future, but you can look back and read and remember the past and see how faithful I am. That God does not give up on His people. And that He has a plan to heal and to save even when things seem really bleak. Genesis. Think about this book. God makes a beautiful creation and then it's ruined. Did Adam see that coming? No. God is not surprised by it. He says, I'm going to crush the head of your enemy. Exodus, God's people are in slavery in the most powerful country on the planet, and God sends Moses, an ex-con shepherd, to set them free. Like, they're saying, we wanted Superman, we got Moses. God is not dismayed, and he frees his people from slavery. God sends Moses up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments in Exodus. Why? Because in a world that can feel like there are tons of just moral gray areas and even more uncertainty to follow... God's law, the way the world is supposed to be, is the best way to handle life's obstacles. Because when we expect here and we get here, what happens, y'all? We do dumb stuff. 
we get stressed out, and so we do something to make, take our minds off the pressure because it feels bad to feel bad, and so we want to feel good, right? We manage our stress with retail therapy. Some of us go and we drink or drink a lot. We are throw ourselves into work, not because we need to, because work is just easier than people sometimes. We aren't obedient to what God's called us because it's hard. But if we quit following God's law so we can escape what's in between here and here, then things only get worse. Because God calls us to step into this reality and to love Him by loving the person that you walk past on the way to campus. And to love Him by loving the person that just doesn't do their dishes. And you know that as long as you live with them, they're just not going to do their dishes. But you've got to love them anyway, right? Like, that's the hard place. <laughs> I thought you were going to do your dishes. You've never done any dishes. <laughs> this, this thing is super applicable to life, by the way. <laughs> to do that, y'all, though, requires something. It requires strength and courage. How do we get those things? It's not like I just walk into Target and pull those off the shelf, right? Because God doesn't say... Okay, Joshua, you must amass weapons. The Israel army must train incessantly. You need to send some spies behind the lines and do recon. Maybe they do some of that. Those things are quite possible. That is not what God tells them to do. Look at what he tells them to do. Verse 8. This book of the law, what Moses had revealed to what God had revealed to Moses, the first part of the Bible, shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. You cannot be, Joshua, somebody because of the urgency of battle or warfare or just life in general, the stress of the everyday. You cannot be someone who would kind of say, you know, look, ideally, in an ideal world, I would read the Bible all the time. But if this wasn't the real world with its schedule and its real urgency, then I could sit down and I could read what Moses had to say. But I'm overwhelmed. I'm a person of action. I'm a man of war. Maybe one day in peace when things settle down and I kind of get some things in a row, then I'll have time to sit down and read the Bible. But until then, I've just kind of, I've got to get stuff done. God says, actually, you must do the opposite. Under stress, under the unknown, you must do what? Get weapons, send out spies, be strong and courageous. And that does not mean I'm going to bottle it up and so the people who live closest to me kind of know that I'm in knots, but no one else around me knows that. I think it means this. And a pastor that I heard recently put it this way. It's as if God is saying to Joshua, Okay, Joshua, rather than let, letting, than <laughs> let um, what you see trump what I've said, I want you for the rest of your life to let what I've said trump what you see. Sit in my word and meditate on it. Put it in your mouth, place it in your heart, because you're going to see hard things. You're going to do hard things. You're called to some extraordinarily difficult tasks. And, I mean, if you're a Carolina, you know that. You feel that. And the real issue is what do we do with that overwhelmed feeling that lives right here? With that panic, with that unrest? Do we run from it? Do we medicate it? Or will you grow strong and courageous in it? Is this defeat right here? Is this defeat staring you in the face? Or is this an opportunity to grow braver and stronger and more courageous because of God's word in your life? Because you know what anxiety is, don't you? I mean, we all know what anxiety is on some level. But what anxiety is, is that it's meditation. But it's just meditation on the wrong things. 
that all you can see is how hard you study and how little actually seems to get done when you do that. And you think about it, like, I'm studying, I'm studying, I'm studying, I'm still failing. I'm studying, I'm studying, I'm studying, I'm still failing. And you just get wrapped up in it over and over and over again, and it's paralyzing. Or for some of you, all you can think about is what you look like and how you never feel in control of that, even though you're putting your body through some incredibly grueling or strenuous things. And what God is saying is that the Bible is not a tool to be used. It's a story to be stepped into. Not like the Lord of the Rings, which is good, but a record, a real story, a real record of what God is doing in the lives of people like you and me. In spite of difficult things. That the Bible is like a set of glasses to be put on so you can start to see what God is actually doing in the world, in your life, and what He actually thinks of your stress. And what He actually thinks of your body. That He loves it and He made it. And it's good. What He actually thinks of times when you feel like you're a failure, but it's actually Him working in your life. Because we just need to know that how we feel about a situation is not the whole story. And that we need to do really to deal with life, is to step into the story the Bible is telling and to put it on and to meditate on it. And not to meditate on our fears, our insecurities, our anxieties, but to actually wear this story and wear it like glasses so that we see the world through it and in that way go out with strength and with courage. Because if God can save His people from big things, slavery in Egypt, wander in the desert for 40 years, a land full of established armies then he can save Carolina from the Duke Blue Devils. You know? And more than that, more than that, he can provide for you when you leave Chapel Hill. That even if you don't have something fixed in stone right now, God will take care of you. That you will survive Orgo. That he is with you in your fears and insecurities and your sense of, I just don't know what I'm doing. Like everyone around me seems like they know what they're doing. I have no idea what I'm doing. And I'm running around, I'm trying to fake it, but I have no clue. God knows, and He cares, and He's at work in that. What the Bible is telling you is that God is God and not your teacher. That He is salvation, not your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your lack thereof, not your GPA. That, yea, though I walk through the valley of no spring break plans, I will fear no evil. Why? Because... Because I figured out the right techniques, or I'll finally get my act together and you know, start to work hard at life, become like finally one of those disciplined people. No, because God is God, and he's given his word to guide me, and so I'm going to listen to that. I'm going to put it on in spite of my fears. I'm going to meditate on that. That's what's going to change my heart. That's what's going to help me enter into this stuff and not avoid it for the first time in my life. Look, y'all, you can't control your roommates. You can't control your parents. But you can follow God when things get out of control. You can read His Word. Hold on to Him in this. Charles Spurgeon, the great Reformed Baptist preacher, lived about 100 years ago, in another sermon on another text, said this. He said, I love God's shells and His wills. Let a man tell you he'll do something. He may, he may not do it. But when God says he'll do something, he will always do it. I love God's shells. Whether you feel it right now or not, whether you know the details of it right now or not, God will. And God does. You know, at the beginning of World War II, um, there was an American general named General Douglas MacArthur. And 
He watched as he sat in the Philippines as the Japanese took over a huge swath of the Pacific and started to come down. And Pearl Harbor happened, and all of our boats got sunk in Hawaii. And he's watching the Japanese come in and just kind of cut everything off. And he has, he's forced to retreat and leave a bunch of his men behind. And as he's leaving, he says this. He makes a promise. He says, I shall return. I shall return. And if you had been maybe a private on the ground that day and looked at kind of the reality on the ground. Of, okay, MacArthur, Mr. Return Guy. They've blown up all of our boats. There are literally thousands of miles between us and the United States. They have all the planes. They have all the submarines. They have all the warships. They have all the guns, all the soldiers. Like They've got everything. And MacArthur looks that in the eye and says, I shall return. And y'all, years later, he actually does. He comes back to the Philippines and drives out the Japanese army. And you know, if a man like that can keep his word, how much more faithful is God? You may be sitting there thinking, what about my tuition money? What about my secret addictions that nobody knows about? What about my fear of, will I ever really know who I am? As I go out in the world, will I ever really know what I want from life? And God says to you, my promises are true for you. He is the ultimate promise keeper. Move into this with strength and courage. I am with you, is what he's saying to Joshua. He says the same thing to us. If this God is with Joshua, what does he have to fear? He doesn't. He can be strong and courageous because he knows who's who's backing him up. He can be obedient even though he's totally tempted throughout this book to run away. If he had, he would have done it because he thought he had no other choice. That what he wanted was up here and what he thought was getting down here. But the reality is, is that he might think, you know, I want Moses next to me, but your servant is dead. I want people who are strong and not grumblers, but this is what I got. I want it to be easy and I get Canaanites instead. And what does God do? He says, I am with you. Joshua, my son, you think you've got it down here. You don't. Read my word. Listen to it. Meditate on it. You've got me on your side. You think you won't hear. You've got here already. Don't turn back. Don't go into Egypt. Don't go into the desert. That's too little for you. But come and follow me. Be obedient to me regardless of how things look. Because that's the wisest way to live. That's living in response to God's promises and the promise that He is with His people. Look at verse 6 here. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Y'all, we can look over this verb to inherit and just kind of glance over it. It is huge here. It is huge in the rest of the book of Joshua. Because this is the story of how God's promises to Israel's forefathers came to pass. And if we're not careful, we can just skip right over it. But here's the question that it kind of provokes. Do you inherit something because of what you did? Why do you inherit something? Because of what someone else did for you and your relationship to that person. Y'all, that sounds so much like the gospel in the Old Testament that it's scary. Let me give you something that you could not have gotten on your own. That's what God's saying. Because you're the strongest, smartest, best person there is? No. Because I'm God. 
Does God's plan involve our action? Yeah, it totally does. Be strong and obedient. Follow me. But our action is dependent upon God's fulfillment to His promises. He acts, we respond. There are tough situations, we don't feel His presence. He's there anyway, and it comes through because He's there. And y'all, if you've ever held a Bible in your hand and looked at the book of Joshua, you know that you can read the book of Joshua and there's a lot more Bible left to go. You can probably guess that God fulfills His promises to this guy. He gives the people His land. He conquers their enemies. He gives them houses they didn't build, vineyards they didn't tend. Yet almost, almost the entire history of Israel is their rejection of God and His promises. In spite of His presence. In spite of His calling them back to be faithful to Him. I don't know if, uh, if when you were little you read the story of the runaway bunny. But it's kind of like this story uh, kind of gone bad. Where like the bunny says, I'm, I'm running away from you mom. I'm going to be a rock in a mountain. And she says, I'm going to be a mountain climber and come up there and get you. And he says, well I'm going to go be a fish in a stream. And she says, well I'm going to be a fisherman and come out and get you. You know, the whole rest of the Old Testament is like that gone bad. God says, I will rescue you from slavery and provide for you in the desert. We will grumble against you and we will make a golden calf to worship right under your nose. I will bring you into a rich land flowing with milk and honey. We will defy it with, defile it with sexual immorality and adultery. I will give you kings to rule over you and deliver you from your enemies. We will corrupt them and they will corrupt us. I will give you prophets. We will kill them. I will send you my son. We will reject him and strip him and crucify him. Because y'all, how these things work together is the whole of the Old Testament is God saying, I will be with you. Let me give you your inheritance, which ultimately is me with my people in harmony, in love, in a world that is not broken or marred by sin and sadness. And when Jesus came, He not only experienced His people's disappointment with what God had given them, He experienced their outright rejection of the one true living God for their idols of power and money and comfort. And He took their disappointment and their rejection right on the chin. When He came, what He wanted was to gather God's people to Himself. But He's rejected. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stoned those who I send to it. How often would I have gathered you as children? How often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her brood beneath her wings and you are not willing? He wants them. And they reject Him. He wanted His friends to stay up and pray with Him on the night of His crucifixion. And they fall asleep. He asked His Father, is there any other way we can do this that doesn't involve a cross? And there's not. Well, God's faithfulness extends even beyond our faithlessness. Jesus goes all the way for us because God is present. God promises Joshua here, I will not leave you or forsake you. Jesus promises the disciples, I am with you always to the very end of the world. Beloved, you may think you're in the dark. Open your eyes. God is next to you. And you may say, this road is too dark for me. I don't know my way. You don't need a map. You have the map maker. You've got the promises. You've got the promise keeper. You have the Holy Spirit. You have God's Word. You have one another and the church. Yeah, you're going to have suffering and hardship in this. But take heart because Jesus has conquered that. And what is in you is what is greater than it's in the world. You know, Jesus has done so much for you. 
If He died on the cross for you, why would He leave you alone in the dark? In His earthly life, He's already walked through the desert ahead of you as His better, greater Joshua. He understands what you're going through now. And because of Him, God looks at you as He sees a son or a daughter whom He loves dearly. He would never leave or forsake. And that is your inheritance. That God is for you. That God loves you and gives you Himself. And God promises the same thing to you that He promises Joshua. I've brought you out of slavery. I'm giving you these great things. Do you see how much I love you? There isn't anything I wouldn't do for you. I know there's a long way to go. But be strong and courageous. Even when life is difficult and disappointing, move into it with me. And with my story and my word. Well, that's my invitation to you. That's God's invitation to you. Now and forever. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for these people. Thank you that you call us into courage. Thank you that you call us to yourself. You call us to a good inheritance with you. Lord, to a world without cancer. Lord, without death or sadness. Lord, to a world uh, where we don't hurt. We don't wrestle with anxiety or depression. But, God, a world with one another. We're healed. Where the world is healed. There's no more suffering or pollution or heartbreak. God, bring us into that world. Bring us into that inheritance. We long for that. We long for it because your son is at work in our lives. Help us to long. Help us to be courageous. Help us to move into one another's lives with the knowledge that you are with us in that. In his name we pray. Amen. Stand and sing. Thank you.